So then we continue on into chapter five. We're going to start skipping some chapters like we usually do with these big books. We go through in chapter five, in this same section, God makes the certainty of Judah's doom clear. He basically tells them in chapter five, they've hit the point of no return. There's nothing that they can ever do. There's no repentance that they can ever do that will stop the Babylonians from coming and taking them into exile. However, the individual can still repent and escape the extermination. And Israel as a whole after exile can repent and come back to God. But as a whole right now, Judah cannot change anything. They are going to go into exile. He tells the people that they're spiritually blind and they should have feared Yahweh. And he tells them that it's time to flee. Okay, And he uses imagery of fleeing to the mountains. And he says, when the Babylonians come, you better flee. Don't resist them. Don't fight them because they'll just get angry and kill you. And you're resisting me and my will if you're resisting the Babylonians because I'm using the Babylonians. But you'll want to flee the major cities. So get out of the Los Angeleses and the New Yorks and all that kind of stuff and the Columbus and, and get into the outskirts because that judgment is coming and there's no being saved from it. And someone would be like, what? What the heck, God? Like, how can you do this? You didn't give us any warning. And God responds and says, oh, yeah, I did. I sent you watchmen. Now, the word watchman is another word that he uses for the prophets. And watchmen are people sit on the, stand on the wall, and they watch for danger, and they call out to the people and warn them of that. And he says, my prophets already did that. I sent prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet for hundreds and hundreds of years, warning you that this is coming. And we didn't talk about this. I forgot to mention this. You have become worse than Judah. And we just read this part in chapter 3. Sorry, you become worse than Israel. Because you saw the Assyrians do this to Israel. And you watched their sin. You watched the consequences of that come. And you saw the judgment come as a result. And you saw that the prophets were right. And now the prophets are telling you the same thing. And you're like, that's not going to happen to us. And so God says in that way, you're actually even worse than Israel, your sister. Because you've seen it all happen. And we've already talked about this before. It's like when younger children are like, Oh, why are you much better than your older brothers and sisters? Like, well, because I got, I watched them get punished all the time and I learned not to do that. What makes it really bad is when you watch them get punished all the time and you still did it and you still joined in on it. And that's what God is saying is you become worse. So don't tell me that you've had no warning. Don't tell me that there's no judgment. He says, you're going to be just like Eli, the high priest in the book of 1 Samuel chapters 1 through 3. Remember he had the two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, that were horribly evil and God came to him and said, I'm going to destroy your entire house. Now remember, Eli was a high priest. You don't get any more holy an office than being the high priest. Now, if he had been obedient to God, he would have been truly holy. But because he wasn't holy and he wasn't, sorry, because he wasn't obedient, he wasn't truly holy. He is only holy in name, not in action. And so you would think of all people Eli's house would never be destroyed because they were the holy priesthood. And the Ark of the Covenant would never be taken during the watch of the priesthood. And yet it was. And God said, just like in the days of Eli in chapter 7 of Jeremiah, just like I pronounced judgment on what was considered the most holy, untouchable people, and I brought destruction to Eli's house completely, I will do the same thing to Israel. Don't think that you're unique and exceptional and that you're going to escape this. He keeps going on and he gives more and more examples of Israel's judgment and sin and wickedness and all that kind of stuff. And we've already talked about that and all the prophets and that kind of stuff. 
And once again, I strongly encourage you to be reading these on your own. Um, I try to go verse by verse as much as possible. But So that brings us to chapter 11, verse 18. Chapter 11, verse 18. Jeremiah's message became extremely unpopular. He was labeled a traitor. He was labeled unpatriotic. And Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah, one thing that makes Jeremiah very unique compared to the other prophets is that we're told that the people didn't like the prophets. We're told that the people often killed the prophets, but we didn't really get a lot of narrative of that happening, and we didn't really see the prophets struggling with everybody not liking them. Jeremiah, and we're not going to read every section of this struggle, but in this part, Jeremiah is really graphic. He's very emotional about not being liked by everybody. And there were assassination attempts on him, even his own family members, his own brothers and sisters tried to kill him for speaking the word of God. And he's basically saying the Babylonians are going to come and they're going to come and destroy you and take you out and you shouldn't resist them because if you're resisting them, then you're going against God and worse things are going to happen to you and that's rebelling against God. Don't resist them. The enemy's coming to kill you. Just lie there and take it. And a lot of people are like, what? This would be the equivalent of going to very strong patriotic people who are very into the Bill of Rights and all that kind of stuff. And, and I don't mean this in a negative way, but you know the people that are really passionate about their rights and being American. And that's a good thing. I'm not knocking it. And then you tell them, put down your guns, give up, and just let the terrorists come into America and take everybody out. This is God's will. That would not go over well. That would not go over well at all. And if you were like, thus saith Yahweh, I don't think that would go over well either. And so that's how he was viewed. He was viewed as that kind of a person. And they did not like them for that. And so Jeremiah often poured his heart out to God saying, this is not fun. This is not cool. This is not what I wanted when I became a prophet. You didn't tell me about this part. And I quit. And there's often times where he said, I quit. I'm done talking. And he literally walks away and quits on God like Elijah did. The difference is, unlike Elijah, a few days later, Jeremiah would come back and say, I tried to shut my mouth, but I can't. The word of God is just welling up in me and my desire for God and to do his will is so great in me that I can't stop preaching his word, even though I know people are going to try to kill me for it and my own family members. And that's powerful. Jeremiah is incredibly a depressing person. A lot of every time he speaks, it's depressing. He sounds like a wino wallowing in his misery and all that kind of stuff. And, it, and I'm not saying that he really is that. I'm just saying it's easy to read it and think that. However, what makes him not a wino and what makes him not that miserable person just whines all the time is that despite all of that wallowing, in the end, he's still like, I can't quit. I can't quit doing the will of God and I can't give up. And there's sometimes that God comes in and rebukes him and kind of metaphorically slaps him in the face and says, how dare you accuse me, God? Or how dare you accuse me, Jeremiah? But in the end, Jeremiah always stays faithful. And that's what we see here. Chapter 11, verse 18. Yahweh gave me knowledge that I might have understanding. And then he showed me what the people were doing. Before this, I had been like a docile lamb, ready to be led to the slaughter. I did not know that they were making plans to kill me. I did not know that they were saying, let's destroy the tree along with its fruit. Let's remove Jeremiah from the world of the living. So people will not even 
be reminded of him anymore. Now, at first, Jeremiah had no idea his own family member, members and his family and friends were all plotting to kill him. And it wasn't until God said, yeah, they're trying to kill you. And there's almost a little bit of Jeremiah's like, why did you tell me? It was kind of nice to be ignorant. But at the same time, he gets really depressed. And that's what he's saying. God revealed to me their plots. I said to Yahweh, O Yahweh, who rules over all, you are a just judge. You examine people's hearts and minds. I want to see you. Pay them back for what they have done, because I trust you to vindicate my cause. Now, this is interesting because Jeremiah is basically saying, I want revenge. I want them to suffer. I want them to hurt. I want them to be in pain for what they're doing against me. I mean, he's been betrayed by his own family members and friends. That's a natural feeling to want them to hurt or to lash back out on them. Your your initial emotional responses are not wrong. Emotions are not wrong. What's wrong is if you nurture those bad emotions and you act in those emotions and you don't surrender them to God. And that's what we see with Jeremiah. And what's so beautiful about this is just like Habakkuk and just like the Psalms that we went through, he says, I want vengeance. I want you to hurt them, God. That sounds like the Psalms, but I'm giving it to you to do it. He is not taking vengeance into his own hands. He's allowing God to work out justice when he wants to, because he says, I know that you are a just God. And that's important. Remember, that's the heart of the Psalms. The Psalms are dark sometimes and emotional And they take you into the depths of despair and depression and sorrow. And sometimes they're imprecatories where David's like, bury them alive and kill all their children and massacre them all. And you're like, how can you pray that? But remember, every single time David and the psalmist and Habakkuk and even Jeremiah here is saying, but I want you to do it, God, because I know I'm not just and I know I'll do it for the wrong reasons, but you are a just God. And I want you to do it. I trust that you will do it in your own timing, your own justice. But this is what I want. And so that's what makes this beautiful. Is that yes, sometimes you're like, oh my gosh, Jeremiah, enough whining and crying or whatever and all that kind of stuff. But the reality is in the end, he surrenders it to God. He always gives it to God. Chapter 11, verse 21. Then Yahweh told me about some of the men from Manoth who were threatening to kill me. They had threatened, stop prophesying the name of Yahweh or we will kill you. So Yahweh who rules over all said, I will surely punish them. Their young men will be killed in battle. Their sons and daughters will die of starvation. Not one of them will survive. I will bring disaster on those men from Anath who threatened you. A day of reckoning is coming for them. So God says, I will get take care of them. But better for them to die in battle than you to take matters in your own hands and kill them with your own hands and blood of your own hands, Jeremiah. Now, he doesn't specifically say that, but that's the implication. I will take care of them. So he says, no, I will take care of them. You will get what you want, but it will be I doing it the way, the right way, not your way. Chapter 12, verse 1. Yahweh, you have always been fair. Whenever I have complained to you, However, I would like to speak with you about the disposition of justice. Why are wicked people successful? Why do all dishonest people have such easy lives? You plant them like trees and they put down their roots. They grow prosperous and are very fruitful. They always talk about you, but they really care nothing about you. But you, Yahweh, know all about me. You watch me and test my devotion to you. 
Drag these wicked men away like sheep to be slaughtered. Appoint a time when they will be killed. How long must the land be parched and the grass in every field be withered? How long must the animals and the birds die because of the wickedness of the people who live in this land? For these people boast, God will not see what happens to us. This is just like Habakkuk. He's complaining, just like Habakkuk. There's violence, there's evil everywhere, all that kind of stuff. So this is what Jeremiah says. Okay, God, I gave you the right. I gave it over to you. And I want you to be just for me. And then you tell me that they're going to one day die in battle when the Babylonians come. I, I've got an issue with that, Yahweh. I want it to happen now. I don't like the fact that they're successful right now. I don't like the fact that they're prosperous. I don't like the fact that they think they can get away with anything. I don't like the fact that I have to run and be hiding and be alone and be miserable and be trade. And they're out there being successful with lots of friends and living it all up, wealthy and everything. And I have to wait for some day to come where they will get it. I may not be around to see that. And that's his problem. with. And that's the same problem with the Habakkuk cat. Why are the righteous sometimes suffer and the wicked prosper? I'm not going to go into all that because we've already dealt with that in Habakkuk. And we really dealt with that on a major level in the book of Ecclesiastes and Job. So to talk about that topic, just go back to those lessons. But once again, Jeremiah is feeling it. And remember, you're not alone when you feel that. People all throughout history have felt it. Yet, here's the powerful part. They always, in the end, surrender to God, rest in him, and he always satisfies them. And it doesn't mean that you're going to be emotionally happy-go-lucky all the time as you watch this evil happen around you and happen to you. But in the end, God does give us a peace and a joy that passes all understanding. In the end, he does bring justice. And this is what Jeremiah is saying. Verse 5, Yahweh answered, If you have raced on foot against men... And they have worn out. Um, sorry, Yahweh answered. If you have raced on foot against men and they have worn you out, how will you be able to compete with horses? If you feel secure only in safe and open country, how will you manage in the thick undergrowth along the Jordan River? As a matter of fact, even your own brothers and the members of your own family have betrayed you. Even they have plotted to do away with you. So do not trust them even when they say kind things to you. So this is what God says. If you've tried to outrun and outdo the men around you that are trying to hurt you, and that has worn you out and made you give up, then how in the world can you compete against running against horses? God's answer to Jeremiah is the same that it was to Job. If you can't even deal with the own evil in your own neighborhood and bring it to an end, and that wears you out and destroys you and cripples you, and you feel like giving up, then how in the world are you going to deal with the evil in the cosmos and all of creation? Yes, you may not like the way that I do it all the time or how delayed I am, but in the end, remember, I can do it and I will do it, and I don't get worn out running with horses. I do not get worn out running with horses. And that's the point that God is making here. Verse 7. I will abandon my nation. I will forsake the people I call my own. I will turn my beloved people over to the power of their enemies. The people that I call my own, I have turned, have turned on me like a lion and the force. And they would roar defiantly at me. So I will treat them as though I hate them. 
So in some ways, Jeremiah, you can relate to what I'm feeling here because your own family members have betrayed you like my own children have betrayed me. But in another sense, what you're experiencing is nothing compared to what I'm experiencing. You've had a few people betray you. I've had my own children who I created and designed betray me and turn against me. And so that's what he's saying here. The people I call my own attack me like birds of prey or like hyenas, but other birds of prey are all around them. Let all the nations gather together like wild beasts. Let them all come and destroy these people. I call my own. Many foreign rulers will ruin the land and where I planted my people. They will be trampled all over my chosen land. They will be turned my beautiful land into a desolate wasteland. They will lay it to waste. I will lie it will lie parched and empty before me. The whole land will be laid to waste, but no one living in it will pay heed. And the destructive army will come marching over the hilltops in the desert, for Yahweh will use them as his destructive weapon against everyone from one end of the land to the other. No one will be safe. My people will sow wheat, but will harvest weeds. They will work until they are exhausted, but they will get nothing from it. They will be disappointed in their harvest because Yahweh will take them away into his fierce anger. So he says they will get it. They will get it one day. Just trust me. And this is God's answer. We will then move on to chapter 18. God continues to prophesy against Israel or Judah, judging them and condemning them. And here God gives an object lesson from with pottery. He's trying to show Jeremiah graphically how he deals with people. And this imagery of the potter and the clay is often misunderstood by people and using a predestination fatalistic kind of a proof for that. And it's not really saying that at all. In fact, you don't see a proof for predestination here. What you see is a proof for both predestination and free will. And I know no one likes hearing that, but that's how the Bible works. It is both you have human will and responsibility. And yes, God is absolutely sovereign and directing things the way he wants. And, and I know this is a big, like, theological grenade. But here's what the, the verse says. Chapter 18, verse 1. Yahweh said to Jeremiah, Go down at once to the potter's house. I will speak to you further there. So I went down to the potter's house and found him working at his wheel. Now and then there will be something wrong with a pot. He was molding from the clay with his hands, so he would rework the clay into another kind of pot as he saw fit. So the potter is fashioning the clay on the wheel, and he's making some kind of pot or vessel or something like that, and something the clay resists him. If you've ever done a lot of um, clay work on a wheel and that kind of stuff, sometimes it does feel like the clay is actually working against you and resisting you. No matter what you're trying to do, you can't seem to get it to form right. And so basically what the potter had to do was just destroy the clay and mash it up and start all over. Now, the process is more technical than that, but that's the idea. And then he would start building something different. And so that's what Jeremiah observed. So in verse 5, there's, here's the point that God is making. Then Yahweh said to me, I, Yahweh, say, O nation of Israel, can I not deal with you as the potter deals with the clay? So Yahweh is the potter and the clay is Israel or Judah. In my hands, you, O nation of Israel, are just like the clay in this potter's hand. There are times, Jeremiah, when I threaten to uproot, tear down, and destroy a nation or a kingdom. But if that nation I threaten stops doing wrong, I will cancel the destruction I intended to do. 
And there are times when I promise to build up and establish a nation or a kingdom. But if that nation does what is displeases me and does not obey me, then I will cancel the good I promised to do. So now tell the people of Judah and the citizens of Jerusalem this. Here's the analogy. The potter is making something of the clay and the clay resists or does something that it wants to. And so God then changes his mind, destroys the clay and refashions in something else. Now, this is the point that God is making. Here's, here's the, the sovereignty of God and the free choice both together. So what he's saying is if I choose to take a nation, clay, and I begin to form it into destruction, the vessel I'm making is for destruction. And yet that clay does something of its own choice and says, no, I repent. I'm going to come back to you. I don't want to be a vessel of destruction. I want to be a vessel of life. I repent. Then God will push the clay down into a mound and give up on making it a vessel of destruction and refashion it into a vessel of life, of blessing and prosperity. Now, what makes this analogy confusing is we often think that if he's got clay, that's Israel, and then he destroys it, that's the destruction. But that's not the point. The destroying the clay is not destruction in real life. The destruction of the clay is God changing his mind and what he's going to do with them. Now, remember, changing his mind means like, oh, like he never thought of it. We've talked about this before. God changes his mind just saying, if he's going to punish you and you repent, then he's no longer going to punish you. He's going to do give you life. That's not God changing his mind because a new idea came up that he didn't see coming or somebody made a really good argument. He's changing his mind because he said he would if you do these things. So what God is saying is here is I'm fashioning a vessel for this. I want it to be destroyed. But the clay says, I don't want to be destroyed. I want to be like you. And it repents. So God starts all over with the clay, mashing it up and makes a new vessel where it's actually a vessel of life. So God had a purpose, a sovereign plan for this. But the free choice of the person wanting to repent changed God's plans, so to speak, for lack of a better phrase. And each fashion is something a blessing. But he says the same thing on the verse. If I fashion a pot into blessing and life like you were, Israel, and you choose to disobey and rebel and sin, then I will crumple you back all up into a ball of clay like the potter and refashion you again into a vessel of destruction. And so here you see the sovereignty of God in balance, tension, whatever word, I don't even know what the right word is here, with the free choice of humanity. And God has predestined, so to speak, or determined that we will be something. But if we repent, we can be something else. Or he's determined that we will be something of life. But if we choose to resist him and shake our fist at him, as the book of Exodus and Numbers calls it, then he will refashion us for something of destruction. So God has a plan no matter what. I will give you life or death. That's the point that Moses was making in Deuteronomy. It's your choice. So God has already predetermined a plan of life or death for you. And you have a choice of what railroad track you want to be on, so to speak. And that's the imagery that he's painting here with the potter and the clay. So, verse 11, Now tell the people of Judah, and this is in Jerusalem, this, Yahweh says, I'm preparing to bring disaster on you. I am making plans to punish you. 
So every one of you stop the evil things that you have done. So I'm fashioning you into a vessel that will be destroyed. Correct the way that you have been living and do what is right. So make your own free choice to not do evil anymore. But they just keep saying, we do not care what you say. We will not, we will do whatever we want to do. We will continue to behave wickedly and stubbornly. So because they refuse to change, then God says, you will continue to be the vessel of destruction. Therefore, Yahweh says this, ask the people of other nations whether they have heard of anything like this. Israel should have been like a virgin, but she has done something utterly revolting. Does the, does the snow ever completely vanish from the rocky slopes of Lebanon? Do the cool waters from the, those distant mountains ever cease to flow? The answer is obviously no. Yet my people have forgotten me and offered sacrifices to the worthless idols. This makes them stumble along the way they, they live and lead the old reliable path of their fathers. They have left them to walk in the bypaths and the roads that are not smooth and level. So God says, just like the waters of Lebanon never stop flowing, Israel was supposed to never stop being a righteous river. That should have been consistently true of them as well. So the land will become an object of horror. People will forever hiss out their scorn over it. All who pass that way will be filled with horror and will shake their heads in derision. I will scatter them before their enemies like dust blowing in front of a burning east wind. I will turn my back on them and not look favorably on them when disaster strikes them. So Jeremiah then comes in and he has something to say. Then the people said, come on, let us consider how to deal with Jeremiah. There will still be priests to instruct us, wise men to give us advice, and prophets declare God's word. Come on, let us bring charges against him and get rid of him. Then we will not need to pay attention to anything he says. So the people then respond and they say, hey, we have lots of prophets and lots of priests to lead us and teach us. So let's just kill Jeremiah. And everybody's like, yay. And so it says this, Then I, Jeremiah, said, Lord, Yahweh, pay attention to me. Listen to what my enemies are saying. Should good be paid with evil? Yet they are virtually digging a pit to kill me. Just remember how I stood before you pleading on their behalf to keep you from venting your anger on them. The irony here is Jeremiah actually act like Moses and pleaded on the behalf of the people that God would not destroy them. And the people are now then trying to destroy Jeremiah, just like what we saw with Moses in the wilderness. So here comes your imprecatory. So let their children die of starvation. Let them be cut down by the sword. Let their wives lose their husbands and children. Let the older men die of disease and the younger men die by the sword in the battle. Let cries of terror be heard in their houses. And when you send bands of raiders unexpectedly to plunder them, for they have virtually dug a pit to capture me and have hidden traps for me to step into. But you, Yahweh, know all their plots to kill me. Do not pardon their crimes. Do not ignore their sins as though you had erased them. Let them be brought down in defeat before you. Deal with them while you are still angry. So this is Jeremiah constantly crying out. He has come to the point now where he's like, I'm no longer going to plead on their behalf that you would show mercy to them. I just want them all to die. And I think we can relate to that. Okay? And yes, in some ways out, when you speak it out loud, you're like, that's not Christian. But at the same time, we can relate to that. We can relate to those emotions and relate to those feelings. But once again, notice he says, you, God, do this. You, God, do this. You, God, do this. He doesn't say, that's it. I'm done. And he leaves his house with his gun. 
and goes vigilantism on them. He gives it to God and he surrenders it to them. 